Waldy and Bendy. Hello and welcome to Waldy and Bendy's Adventures in Art, the podcast they could not stop. Indeed, they couldn't even slow it down. So here we are again, and this time with a fast-paced, cutting-edge digital art special. If you want to be part of now, this is the podcast you'll need to take you there. Now, usually I'm called Valdemar Janusztak, and I'm the art critic of the Sunday Times. But you may remember a few weeks ago, we had a Waldy and Bendy t-shirt competition to find the best digital nom de plume for Bendy and me. So that's digital aliases that would suit this new world we live in. So in this episode of the podcast, our digital special, I'm going to be called Wald D. That's my moniker, Wald D. Uh, my co-host on the podcast, the celebrated art historian and thinkmeister, who used to be known as Bendor Bendy Grosvenor, is going to be known this week as The Squiggle. That's his digital moniker, The Squiggle. So, Squiggle, how's it going up there in digital Scotland? I'm fine, thank you. We should perhaps um, enlighten our listeners who may have missed the episode where we earned our digital monikers um, that I'm Squiggle because it's an allusion to uh, the rock star Prince who called himself Symbol. Is that right? That's right. He was briefly the symbol when he was at war with um, his record company um, and uh, he, he wanted to sort of challenge their, their ownership of all his copyright. So he called himself this weird sign, which can only really be described as a symbol. Yeah, but you're, okay. you're, as I said, more Squiggle. All right. And, and a listener very generously said that I was the prince of art history, so therefore I'm Squiggle. Well, that'll do me nicely. Thank you. Yeah, that poor listener. Oh God, he got it so wrong, didn't he? But yes, he got the name right, at least. You are indeed the, uh, the Squiggle. So anyway, Squiggle, uh, once again, this podcast overfloweth. There's so much to fit in. Uh, later on, we're going to be finishing something that we started before Easter, which is the search for the best horse in Western art. Now we've had single horses, so we're moving on to herds. Lots of horses, that's a stampede of nags on the way. Also, Squiggle, you'll be saying yay or nay to a famous painting by Leonardo da Vinci, while I, Wald D, will be poking a small toe into the pixelated world of video art. Plus, Beyonce, yes, Beyonce, she's on as well. So that's all on the way, but first, the calendar. It enslaves us all, and when it speaks, we listen, even Wald D and the Squiggle. Dodgy, 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 anniversary. So, Squiggle, on the 11th of March, 2021, while we were live on air on this podcast, watching it happen, a digital artwork by an artist who called himself Beeple, uh, but his real name is Mike Winkleman, was sold at Christie's for $70 million. Well, 60 million plus bits and pieces of add-on. So that was exactly, exactly 28 days ago. And we watched it happen right, right here on this podcast. And since then, it's been pretty much impossible to open the papers without reading more stuff about people, about NFTs, about digital art. It's the main topic, isn't it, these days? Uh, and in this fast-moving world of ours, 28 days is clearly an important anniversary. And we obviously need to celebrate it loudly and enthusiastically. So uh, what have you lined up for us, Squiggle? Oh, well, Wald D, we are going to go to a virtual museum and see some of Beeple's work. Um, and do you know that we already, this podcast, Wald D, has a walk-on part in the current NFT Beeplemania world. Uh, because last week you interviewed David Hockney, uh, the great British artist, and you got him to comment on, on the NFT craze, and he, he was not impressed, shall we say. Mm. Um, anyway, did you know that um, David Hockney's remarks reached Mike Winkleman, a.k.a. Beeple himself? And do you know what he said? No, no, tell me. Um, and David was, was not best pleased and made the point that um, digital art can quite easily get lost. And with his, for example, David Hockney's own iPad paintings, he always has to print them out. So you buy the print, even though mm. it's born digital. Well, anyway, um, Beeple was not best pleased. And he put out a tweet uh, responding to David Hockney. And he said, guys, I really want to go legit. Looking for printer recommendations, budget 
is $69 million. <laughs> what a smart ass. Wow, people. Um, well, there's two things to say about that. One, how wonderful that um, our interview managed to, uh, to, as it were, go out that far into the world. So far, they would even contacted people. Um, but also, um, I think even in the $69 million stake, Mike Winkleman, alias Beeple, I think David Hockney has it on you there because his stuff goes for 90 million. So you've still got some way to go, people. Ha, 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 ha. Yeah. And anyway, um, $69 million is not is still not going to be enough to buy anyone a printer that actually works. I should also <laughs> point out that um, uh, in the article through which our interview with David Hockney came to people's attention, it was said that, uh, quotes, a rather snooty host of the podcast agreed with David Hockney about the quality of, of, of people's work. And I assume that rather snooty referred to me, but actually it was referring to you, Waldi. Well, whoever wrote that knows absolutely nothing. I mean, you don't get less snooty than me. You know, I mean, look at my build. I am a man of Slavic origin who was put on earth to pick potatoes in a field um, somewhere north of Galicia. It's a ridiculous suggestion. I am a man of the people, and these other people don't know a man of the people when they hear one. That's all I've got to say on that. Well, um, in today's for, for today's digital special, we are going to go, Waldi, sorry, Waldi, we're going to go um, into the virtual exhibition space and look at some of people's works. Um, so I'm going to share my screen with you through the magic of technology, right. and um, we're going to go in and see, see what to make of all this. Sorry, before, before you do that, uh, uh, squiggle where, what is this we're going into I'm just unsure of where it is you're taking me can you just give me a bit more information okay now can you see this swirling sort of building in front of us on your screen there's uh, yes I can see an approximation of a building with loads of bits all over it it's a sort of um looks a bit like the Pompidou center or something like that with all the furniture taken out yeah. So we are now rotating. We're going to go in in a minute. We are now rotating around in the digital world, something called the B20 Monument. Now, uh, this was a, a virtual museum created by the people who bought Beeple's Everyday's uh, picture or whatever you call it, digital artwork for $69 million at Christie's. Now, it's called Metapurse. It's the Metapurse Fund, right? So, but before they spent $69 million at Christie's, they had already invested in a number of people's uh, artworks they bought 20 of them in january of this year they paid about i think three million dollars for them and uh in order to display them they built this museum hence the b20 people 20 right so we're going to go in uh, and the idea is that um they are going to put the the 69 million dollar artwork into either this creation or something very like it so if i click uh, on visit so, so, so how on, Bendy, because I'm, I'm a novice in this world. I'm a virgin when it comes to, to, to virtual museums. This, this uh, fake space that we're going into um, is a museum created by the guys that bought the big Beeple work for 60 million plus, 70 million. And we are going to be led into it, I presume in the manner of a computer game or something, by you, is that right? I'm and we're going to find Beeple art in there. Is, is, that, is that what's happening? Hopefully. Uh, I mean, I, I should stress that I'm I'm not really a, a gamer or a digital person, but um, I'm going to try and guide you through. I've clicked visit. We have to wait for this funny website to load. And there we are. Uh -huh. We are standing, Waldi, on what looks like a cobbled road. Now, if I get my little cursor the edge cursor of the world, here, by the look of it, that's the edge of the world, isn't it? Now, I get my cursor here and I go forward. Oh, no, I don't. Oh. We may have hit the first snag with the virtual museum uh, here, which is that um, people like you me can't and you get into it can't get outside. in. Uh, oh, I see. No, I, well, no, I've, I was in. Sorry, I was just, I just, I just walked into a wall. That's why I couldn't see anything. Now well, we're in, Waldy. Okay. Are we in? Yeah, we're in. Can um, you hear? Can you hear okay, the footsteps? No, I can't hear footsteps, but I can see. Uh, yes, I can see. I can see things. I can see oh, spaces. Look. Look, there's um, digital art. Oh, oh there's music. music. I think we'll uh, I'll just turn the volume down. Now, here so, we are. We so, ought to speak in hushed tones because we are in the museum of uh, masterpieces. Which which bit and of the museum are we in at the moment? I, actually, I don't think we're in it. I think we're sort of in the entrance lobby. Uh, oh, no, by, oh. by the look of it, we're in the toilets now. <laughs> Hang on. Um, toilets. Now, I think first edition winding gallery, it says. Oh, okay, go on. And uh, 
Oh, that's the, that's the toilets again. Hang on. Yeah. Now, in order to get up to see the Beeple artworks, we have to uh, apparently go in a I've lift. Just, yeah, there's a sign just gone up there saying you have to go in a lift. Uh -huh. Where's the lift? Okay. Uh, Taya. Taya, can you... <laughs> Uh, at this point, listeners and Walt D, I think we have to um, get in our other digital aid. <laughs> Producer Taya, um, if I send up, uh, can, can you come to our help? Yeah, Taya, you um, need to say you need to save Squiggle from um, from his cursor. Right, I'm a bit confused as to where we are right now because I can't. Obviously, I just see your screens. I, I can't, I'm not in in the space with you. Can... What's that on the roof? Those purple things turning around ceiling fans because oh, yeah. i feel very hot in there didn't yeah, you? yeah. Oh, do you know you can look around with your mouse so if you move no, your no my mouse doesn't work you might have to try and click or something to sort of because uh, you might have exit mm. yeah now you should if you move your mouse now i think you should Taya, be able to Taya, do you think you could save the world and also save us from having to follow bendy backwards and forwards into the toilets <laughs> could you take this over and lead us through and we'll just comment on what you managed to find in there is that possible? i can i can try yeah if you if you lead me roughly where you want to go right so taya's taken over the controls thank god um taya you seem to be at ease here well take us somewhere useful well i haven't i haven't been here much but i have found uh, amid, amidst the uh, light posts and the fans and the big uh, pink trees an elevator that's right and by the look of it Taya has, has found someone another owner or another visitor in the lift that we're in who's that Taya is that you no I was thinking maybe that was you if you were poking around here earlier if you're still in it's it might a be bald, you. a white bald oh, that, person that might be you yes you found me head. you found me and I'm stuck in the lift you found me Taya right, hey, okay. so where am I if Squiggles there where's Wald D you don't Who's exist. Deep? You're you're so meta, Waldy. You don't you don't oh, actually exist. You look like one of those things that artists use, you know, when they're painting figures. Um, those, those, those kind of articulated models that people use yeah. for for posing. Oh, I'm looking um, good. Yeah, you actually. look sweet, Ben. Yeah. Uh, sorry, Squiggle. You look sweet. But let's go, Taya. Can you can you lead us towards some art? Yes, um, I managed to find, I poked around earlier and I managed to find some people art on floor two. I'm not sure if there is on any floor. Do you want any specific, particular any, floor? Any floor? Floor two, sounds good. Floor two. floor two. Oh, we're out. We're out somewhere new. We've come to a new place. And that's an artwork or a digital artwork, an NFT. So we're there in a we dark, are. we're in a black corridor, uh, quite a tight corridor. And we're looking at, um, it looks like a, it looks like an advert you see on a bus stop. Yeah, Super Mario, though. I recognize yeah. the see the guy at the bottom with the dungarees and the red hat. That's Super Mario. Okay. And, so and this those is... mushrooms. There's some mushrooms as well there. They look like. Um, uh, I don't know what it symbolizes, uh, Squiggle. What, what well, do you there's think? There's a little thing there. Uh, Tay, if you can zoom in on that, it says Artist Notes. This is Beeple number 4803. Now, what does it say there? Mm. It says, oh, hang on. Pardon my French. It says, fucking goombas everywhere. Um, and to contextualize right. it, those things uh, next to Mario there, those are called Goombas in the Super Mario game. Oh, so they're from the Super Mario game as well, Goombas. Oh. Yeah, they don't look exactly like that, obviously, but mm. it's there. Oh, I interviewed the chap who invented Super Mario once in a film I made about some technology in Japan. Very, very nice bloke. I mean, what they call an otaku which is a Japanese word for a, a bloke who basically never leaves the room, sort of sits there surrounded by computers and spends his whole life digitally. But a very nice, uh, nice guy. And um, yeah, he, he, he was very, very uh, talkative on the subject of Super Mario. Anyway, so that's that. Let, let's move on from the Goombasses and Super Mario. What else have we got here? <gasps> so you keep going into these new rooms with new artworks hanging, as it were, on the wall. It's a good these black corridors. It's like a bit like, you know, when you just go to the fair and you went on the ghost train. And, and there's always something coming up that sort of jumped up and frightened you. It's a bit like that, isn't it? Yes, and here is another thing to jump up and frighten us. It's a oh, picture yeah. of Jabba the Hutt. Dear me. Uh, right. Yeah, that oh, reminds that so me. I did, I've got to stop eating so much. Um, uh, oh, God, uh, it's Jabba's given birth, and there's all sorts of like placenta-like stuff <laughs> on the floor. And I mean, called, <laughs> It's called Jabba Afterbirth. It's, is it two, two, two Jabbers have given a birth to a, a third Jabba, a baby, and there's a 
jabber shape placenta all over the floor. Oh, and I look monk, a sort of Zorbaran type of monk standing at the front looking at it all. No, no well, I'm sorry to art historically educate you here. That is not a monk, it's an Ewok. A what? Ewok. Oh. It's a Star Wars reference. Is it? Oh, I'm so out of my depth here. Oh, right, I don't know. I thought it was Zorbaran. Um, yeah, well, so far we've seen monsters, gore, placentas. Uh, let's, let's see what else is there in this beautiful museum, this life-enhancing um, cellar of death that we're trapped in. This one says Third Dawn. It's a picture of some sort of modern dystopian sculpture clad in scaffolding can you zoom in on the image itself can we kind of get i can, I can the, walk it just, closer it just, it just becomes very pixelated mm. so um uh, on a on a purely prosaic level uh, the it strikes me that this virtual museum right is impossible to navigate around it's dark corridors you can't sort of get some sense of the scale or ambition of the art itself and you can't zoom in on the digital art and i thought the whole point of digital art was you could sort of zoom in and see it in all its glory but it just breaks up into pixels yes um i suppose part of this might just be that we're not very good at doing this uh, uh squiggle um okay. navigating your way through it seems to require skills that uh, that perhaps um we don't yet have uh, yeah. but it is overwhelmingly full of sort of monsters and comic-y things and uh, darkness. Um, I must admit, I'll be quite happy to get out of here, actually. It's also yeah. a little bit claustrophobic going through all these corridors. I guess we're not quite the right people for it. Let's have one more, and then I think I think let's let's escape down the lift yeah. again, Bendy. Uh, oops, sorry, yeah, Squiggle, what do you think? Excuse I think me. if Taya could find the exit, that would be marvellous. Oh, no, it's that. It's yeah, the, more, it's the placenta again. Oh, Jabba, God, it's the, we're stuck it's, in Jabba I think oh, this is the end of the fitness. line over here, so we're going to have to go somewhere else. Back on the lift. Back on Back the lift. lift. Does okay. the lift lead to the way out? Yeah. I don't yes. know. Do you want more out, or do you want to go no. out? No, I think I feel. Do you want to go to the meeting room? There's a meeting room. No, 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 no. Taya, let's just get us out of there. <laughs> I can see Squiggle. He's gone pale. He's bleached to to to, to, to a scary Scottish whiteness. Get him out and get me How out. How do I get out? Ah, yeah, there you go, Bendy. Lost in cyberspace. I don't know, a bleak experience, really. Um, it, it just seems such a sort of limited thing to do, and there's something claustrophobic and deadly about it all. And uh, definitely not, not, not for me in most circumstances. But I have to say, I mean, I, I sort of, I wish these digital ventures were like. I think the idea of a virtual museum is really quite good and interesting, and putting digital art in it. But this is terrible. It's like yeah. some. It's a bit like that game my stepson's playing, uh, Minecraft. It doesn't right. seem to be much more advanced than that. Yeah, I think going around a place, the sort of treasure hunt aspect of this, which I guess is what gamers like. I mean, that's pretty good fun, really, isn't it? You, you click and you go and you find. I mean, it's the art itself that is the disappointment. There's a digital mindset that seems to go with the art. And it is all to do with monsters. And so much of the world experience isn't about being stuck in a room full of monsters and sci-fi. There's nothing here that gives you the breadth of the sea or the land or, or air or meeting people or real relationships or any of those things that happen in life. And I suspect that digital art isn't really that good at capturing that kind of stuff. So maybe there's a role left for um, real artists to talk about real things. Thank goodness for that. Well, uh, the good news is that we can get away from all this uh, because uh, we've got somewhere to go to, uh, Squiggle, uh, somewhere fantastic, exciting on the horizon. Um, somewhere from which I think right now even I can smell the fresh aromas of the countryside, the uh, pong of the open air, the lovely perfume of, uh, of Squiggle's donkeys. Ah, yeah, we all know where we need to go next. Yes, Squiggle, we're back on Bendor Grosvenor's farm, or as we'll have to rechristen it this week, the Squiggles Farm. A couple of weeks ago, we did single horses in our search for the best horse in art, and that was won by Jericho. So this week, we've moved on, and we're looking for the best group of horses in Western art, horses in their multiples. Uh, there's lots of them, but which is the best? Uh, Squiggle, I believe we're going to kick off with Rosa Bonner. Is that right? 
Uh, we could do, yes, the Rosa Bonner's Horse Market. There's two versions of this painting. The original is in the Metropolitan Museum in New York, painted in 1852. This huge canvas, it's uh, two and a half meters high by five meters wide, uh, depicts um, the horse market in Paris and where the, the people selling the horses used to uh, demonstrate the horses by giving them a little run around before the sale. And what we see here is horses in, in very energetic pose. They're sort of sprinting a bit and jumping a bit and rearing up. And we are in the role of a prospective buyer, seeing if we would like to buy one of these magnificent beasts. It's a frieze, isn't it? In terms of its composition, it's one of those pictures that unrolls in front of you from the left to the right with all these horses passing by. And that, of course, friezes always do the same thing for a work of art. They give it a kind of nobility, a sense of classicism, because all the great friezes were basically invented by the Greeks and the Romans. So you've got that sense about it as if, as if there's an ennobling of the horse going on, haven't you? Mm -hmm. Then, of course, look at the detail here. I mean, what she was fantastic at, Rosa Bonner, it was unquestionably one of the great uh, animal painters of the 19th century, massively influenced by Stubbs and, and by Jericho, our winner last week. Mm -hmm. um, she was incredibly uh, good at the detail, wasn't she? And she apparently spent months, didn't she, at the horse fair in Paris, looking at these animals, sketching them, drawing them. And it really shows. I mean, there is about five, different, six different types of horse here. You know, a dark one, a chestnut one, a couple of whites, a couple of greys, a palomino, all absolutely given their own identity and their own little bit of energy. I mean, it's a fantastic picture. And of course, to control this many horses, as it were, in a picture, to try and give it some sense of rhythm and composition. I mean, that's a very difficult thing to do. And she's done it wonderfully. Yeah, and the picture was a great sensation when it was exhibited at the Paris Salon in 1853 and absolutely catapulted Rosa Bonheur's to international fame. While she was doing the sketches, uh, which I think she spent about 18 months studying this these horse markets in order to paint the picture. Do you know what she got from the police? Something called a permission de travestissement. Do you know what that is? Uh, no idea. Travestissement, it's uh, to do with transvesticism. It's, uh, she, she had to get permission from the police to wear male clothes oh, uh, because she found when she started doing you know, her observations that uh, when she was dressed as a woman, she kept being pestered and she just wanted to sort of blend in, so she dressed as a man, and everybody mm -hmm. thought she was just a, a boy admiring the scene. This is the pioneering thing about Rosa Bonner, wasn't she? I mean, she was a well-known lesbian um, at a time when a lot of uh, French art was finding all sorts of titillatory ways to record lesbian life. I mean, think of those paintings by Courbet, etc., you know, which were salacious in an extreme. Uh, but she brought dignity to to the role. I mean, she she lived with, didn't she, with her f partner for 40 years. Um, she dressed like a man. She never tried to hide her sexual uh, inclinations. So she was um, very much a, a pioneer, um, a social pioneer. And yet um, in her art, she's kind of going back to other traditions, these, these respectable traditions of painting horses, of great nobility and romanticism. So she was a, a complex character, but a really stirring and important character. Yeah. And up until this point in her career, she'd found it difficult to break into the, obviously, the uh, traditionally male world of places like the Paris Salon. And I just think it's, it's an interesting reflection of the times and her struggles, that it took a, a five-metre-wide, huge picture of muscular, writhing horses in order to literally sort of absolutely explode herself onto the Paris art scene. Well, it did it very successfully, didn't it? And, um, I mean, wow, what a picture. If you've been to the Metropolitan Museum in, in New York... I mean, it's got a whole whacking great wall to itself, hasn't it? I mean, it's cinematic. That's the word for it, isn't mm. it? Massive, great cinematic. What a what a top arrival in art by um, by this interesting uh, artist, Rosa Bonner. Um, the next thing we come to, which is going to be Frederick Remington, the great cowboy artist of America. Look, cowboy art is something that gets looked down on a lot these days. People are very sniffy about it. And I know why, you know, you go to any basically bog standard American hotel in the Midwest, and there'll be somebody there with a sort of Remington fake in the saloon or um, resting on the um, on the counter when you check in. You know, it's a sort of immediate symbol of something slightly naff. But at his best, this guy, Frederick Remington, he could really be um, excellent and exciting. I found this all out when I was doing my big American art series, and I came to love Frederick Remington. His dates were 1861 to 1909. Um, he was principally a painter to begin with, and famous for his work for um, various American magazines, Harper's Weekly, where he illustrated cowboy pictures. Then sort of late in his career, he became a sculptor, and that's where it becomes brilliant, I think. 
And this, this particular work here, it's called uh, Coming Through the Rye. Now, it's got four cowboys on horses, shooting up in the air, yelling, shouting, charging straight towards you if you're standing in front of the sculpture, right straight towards you. Coming Through the Rye, though, well, you know what that's about, don't you? Because you're in Scotland, so you know exactly what that refers to, don't you, Squiggle? Is it to do with whiskey? It's not directly to do with whiskey, although they do oh. look as if they've had plenty of whiskey down them as they ride into town. It's a poem by Rabbi Burns. Another poem. How many times have, have we managed to get Rabbi Burns into this uh, into this podcast? So, yeah, he wrote a poem called Coming Through the Rye. It became a quite a famous song, actually. So the poem was turned into a song which, um, uh, if you wish, I'll sing you a verse or two of it. Uh, Gin a body meets a body, coming through the rye. Gin a body, kiss a body, need a body, cry, etc., etc. Um, and that was a popular song, which, which was exported, I guess, by Scottish people to America in the 19th century. Uh, you know the J.D. Salinger novel, Catcher in the Rye? That, that's based on the same source, on, on the Rabbi Burns poem. And the poem itself is about a guy who meets a, a woman in the field of rye and it's raining. So her, um, her dress is really wet and clinging. Since it's a rubby buttons, you can imagine what happens. But by the time it became a song, it, it took on this other kind of meaning. And I think, yeah, what's happening here really is that these four cowboys shooting up in the air with their guns and shouting and screaming are kind of riding into town or riding into a saloon with joyous uh, abandon. But they've come out of a field of rye, perhaps. That's the idea. They're just sort of riding through the rye rather than anything to do with teenage sexual angst, which is what um, G.D. Salinger, of course, was writing about in Catcher of the Rye. So uh, uh, I'll stop babbling for a minute and just ask you, isn't it wonderful? I don't like it. I don't like these things at all. No, I, perhaps it's uh, been, they've been tarnished by association. But your description of these things earlier on, like a like a sort of terrible trophy on a Texan oil billionaire's desk in his office, they scream such bad taste to me. That terrible moment in American art when it all goes awry in the late nineteenth century, fueled by this sort of uh, this really sad moment of the, the viciousness of the American westward expansion. Uh, because Remington was there, wasn't he, when um, following the American armies as they scythed down Native Indians um, and, and massacred them. I mean, I shouldn't, I shouldn't judge um, Remington's individual artworks or perhaps the artist himself on that uh, later uh, historical view. But it, as I say, it's just sort of guilt by association. And I, I look at it and I think, I don't like any of that stuff. I used to think like you till I actually saw some of these in, in in real life, proper ones, not the fake ones you get in the American hotels, but the real one, you know, in, in the great museums um, of the Midwest. Listen, Remington was slightly guilty of what you say. Of course he was. Um, but by and large, the interesting thing about him is that he, he had some experience of the West when he was young. He started a saloon in Kansas City, which failed. So he went back to New York, which is where he was born. And although he's thought of as this authentic cowboy artist much of what he produced was produced in new york in brooklyn and can be understood as a work of the imagination now i haven't got a lot of time for his paintings which are, do look often like the like the covers of western cheap western novels but the sculpture is something else now listen this thing here right four horses in fantastic movement with four figures on their back only, I think it's it's six, only six hooves are actually touching the ground out of these four horses. The rest are all in the air. And the horse on the far left, none of its hooves are touching the ground because in this brilliant piece of dynamic horse sculpture, he's found a way of showing it without it actually touching the ground. So in terms of the pure mechanics of sculpture, of trying to make this happen as a sculpture, having something on the base that these legs can stand on. This is a fantastic work of art. I mean, this, this is something that it could never have done in the Renaissance. They could never have done earlier in the 19th century. I mean, it is actually brilliantly done. Now, see, I think the spirit of it is rather wonderful. I'm not going to go down the path of, of America's um, terrible cultural past when it, when it comes to Native Americans. I know exactly what you mean. I think uh, Remington's views on that are in the large, they, they're on the same side as you actually, Squiggle. Um, he's not a man who took any pleasure in the death or the conquest of, of the Midwest that way. But he did feel something for the cowboy spirit. And I think what we need to do is just forget for a minute that these are cowboys and just think of it as an evocation of that kind of spirit of success and happiness of sort of being able to ride free as the air into town and 
and and it's about that really it isn't about those other things and although um of course he wasn't guiltless and none of this art is guiltless uh, all i can say to you is that i used to not like it much and then i've come around to liking it a lot more and i think this is wonderful okay well well i think you're doing your best to educate me there and i think this is going to be on my list of places that you and i need to go when lockdown is over um going out to the american midwest and saddling up and being able to just literally you know kick the horse and ride on That's no it. limits no boundaries and just escape with my hair flowing in the wind and <laughs> and your hair would be too if you had any we are going to just feel the spirit yeah we'll go and uh, imbibe on everything remington and perhaps that by the end of it i might like his art a little bit more a little bit more okay well let's move on to something i know you do like uh and of course i do too and it's fantastic it's interesting it's exciting and it's to do with leonardo da vinci take us there uh squiggle well this is his mural for the battle of anghiari which was painted he tried to paint it in about 1505 and this was a commission in florence to commemorate a, a famous florentine victory over the milanese from 1440 in fact and apparently the battle, uh, which lasted all day, it was a huge affair. Um, only one person died in it when they, when they fell off their horse. So, Very Italian battle. Yeah, <laughs> you could say that. Um, but anyway, uh, although the battle was a success in terms of the Florentines and a number of people killed, the painting, alas, was not. Because although we know from uh, copies and particular a fine drawing by Peter Paul Rubens, we know we have glimpses into how brilliant this painting was. There are real sort of a swirling mass of drama and excitement of, of horses, uh, anatomically perfect as they're rearing up and, and riders uh, sizing each other with their spears and swords. Although we, we have glimpses into the power of the original painting, Leonardo, as we have discussed many, many times on this podcast, was absolutely hopeless when it came to the craft of painting. Because even as he was painting this mural, he, he realised he got all his, uh, his recipes back to front and the paint was, was falling off even before he'd finished it. In fact, in a vain attempt to try and get the paint to dry in an appropriate manner on the wall, he, he lit a fire underneath it to try and warm the place up, but that didn't work either. So unfortunately, uh, the painting didn't last very long. It was overpainted by an artist, a later artist called Giorgio Vasari, and has been lost to us for all time. Ah, oh, good old Vasari. Um, yes, listen, oh, can you imagine how, how great this would have been when it was done? If only that damned Leonardo da Vinci was just technically less inept, really. I mean, his experiments ruined so much. I can't imagine how great this was. There is this fantastic sketch by Rubens, as you say, which... Um, Oh, it's so full of energy and, and fighting spirit and dynamism. And, and there's not a straight line in it. It's all to do with kind of combat and war, which is actually not a very Leonardesque mood, is it? I mean, if you think of most Leonardo da Vinci paintings that we know, well, all of them, really, you know, the Mona Lisa or the Last Supper or his John the Baptist or, you know, the St. Anne, uh, you know, they're all beautiful, typical Renaissance in their mood and in their stillness. Um, and they're wonderful Madonnas and they're wonderfully full of detail and, you know, all that. But they're not really full of Baroque energy. But this is, you know, this is. And unless Rubens is lying to us and, and, and misrepresenting the mood of this thing, I mean, this must have filled the um, chamber in the Palazzo Vecchio in Florence with the sound of war and the gnashing of horses' teeth. It must have been so exciting. Um, oh dear, I mean, yes, no, fabulous work. And of course, there are these great drawings as well, aren't there, by Leonardo for bits and pieces of it, some of which are in the Royal Collection. So some of the faces with their scowls, details of the horses, action-packed, brilliant picture, given this weird, tragic air by the fact that um, it's there no more. At least some yeah. people say it's, it's gone, but others say it might still be there, don't they? Well, yes, we'll come on to that in just a second, but um, we should just uh, perhaps say, so the, the mural was in the Salone di Cinquecento in the Palazzo Vecchio in Florence. And it is one of the great what might have been of Western art history, because on one wall, on the left, you had Leonardo's Battle of Anghiari, and on the right, opposite, it was, was supposed to be a, a similar size uh, picture by Michelangelo. Uh, that's right, the Battle of Cassina, yeah. Yeah, who only got as far as making a cartoon for it, which was on the wall uh, for a long time until it was chopped up. So uh, and now the whole place is covered by really not very good works by Giorgio Vasari, who, bless him, was a great art historian, a great writer, but not a great painter. Anyway, uh, yes, there was this sort of peculiar tale about 10 years ago now, wasn't it, that somebody had this idea that behind Vasari's 
fresco might have been the original traces of the Leonardo. And they, they started drilling into the walls, didn't they? And trying to sort of mm. poke around with the torch. Mm. That's right. Uh, they made a TV film about it. I was sort of vaguely involved at one point. Because the interesting thing is that the Vasari, and Vasari was this Mannerist artist who basically was employed by everybody because he was renowned as the fastest artist in Italy. So he could churn out stuff that would take others months in a day. So they, he worked all over Italy with his quickfire mannerism. Uh, but what he did in the Palazzo Vecchio was to build a false wall in front of the Leonardo. So it's a bit like using plasterboard if you're building a house. You know, you put the plasterboard in front of the real wall. And so there is a space behind the Vasari uh, of a few centimetres that could be, as it were, the space before the fresco. So it's not an impossibility that it is, or bits of it are there. Although, as you said before, from what we hear, it's all fallen down and dripped after he tried to heat it. Um, so I can see why they'd have a go. but. On the other hand, it could just be one of those art pipe dreams, couldn't it, that uh, people keep having. But the point is, we have glimpses into what a great painting this was originally. And we know from people like Rubens, who consciously copied parts of it for his pictures of boar hunts and lion hunts and so on, we know what an influence it was. And you can draw lines from Leonardo's, albeit lost, Battle of Anghiari, right through Rubens to people like uh, Stubbs and, and his picture of Whistletacket. So it's, it's mm. a, a really, really important picture in the history of horse painting. It is, and especially of Rubens. You can see how many of those Rubens paintings uh, took their horses from this. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's a shame that it's lost. Uh, we can dream on about finding it one day. I'm going to go on now from Leonardo to another artist that I like a lot, but I know um, there are controversial aspects to him. Um, let's put it that way. That is Gauguin. A Gauguin was also a very keen horse painter, not all the way through his career, but towards the end, I mean, everybody knows that Gauguin went to Tahiti and he lived there for a decade, pretty much, painting uh, in Tahiti itself and the surrounding islands. But it's, it's sort of lesser known, or at least lesser appreciated, that at the, right at the very end of his life, for the last few years, he basically took a boat to the most faraway place you can find on Earth. Literally, the place that is furthest away from any major landmass on the entire globe is this place called the Marquesas Islands, which are, you know, way, way, way beyond Tahiti, right in the middle of nowhere. Uh, so he spent his last few years in the Marquesas Islands, painting away. He built himself a sort of native home in the town of Atuona. And he produced some of his most sort of lyrical and gentle paintings there. And uh, this is absolutely gorgeous, I think. And it's a scene of people riding their horses on a beach. And it's the locals, both boys and girls. And this is something they do, by the way, because I've been to Atuona and I've been to the Marquesas Islands. And even today, people still basically get around on horseback and they ride on the beach bareback. No reins, no saddles. They just hang on to the, the horse's mane. And it's a bit of that spirit of Remington almost, of just this sort of freedom of being a ride across the beach. And this beautiful painting shows a, a group of young Tahitian people, young Marquesas Islanders. And what's extraordinary about it, really, apart from the precision with which the horses are delineated, each one as it were in a different shape, is the colour scheme. Now Gauguin was the first great master really of inventive symbolic colour in Western art. And he is the guy that taught everybody else that um, sometimes if something's yellow, you can paint it pink and it doesn't matter. So lots of people were influenced by this, most obviously the Fauves, obviously, in, in, in Paris. But here they've got this beautiful expanse of pink sand, which is just so gorgeous and, and enhancing. And beyond it, a beautiful line of the sea with this, this terrific blue and the waves coming in. So... Although it has an air of paradise about it, there's also just this air of gentleness and love and fondness. And I think you can really feel here how much empathy Gauguin had for the people of the Marquesas Islands and also some of the sadness that he brought with him to, to, to this faraway place, as far away from civilization as he could get, um, knowing full well that when he got there, he'd probably never leave and he was going to die here. Uh, so, so there's a sadness. All that's in this picture. Hmm. Yeah, I'm... I'm... You've described it very well. I struggle to see what the narrative is here because the figures are all sort of slightly wandering aimlessly on the beach. Nobody's going in a single direction. There's somebody there standing, looking rather um, vacant in the middle. Um, I, it doesn't do it for me. It doesn't pack a punch. I, I can see, I think I'm right in saying that Gauguin was um, quite inspired by Degas' pictures of horses. Is that right? And I can see how he's drawn inspiration from that. But uh, I think I prefer to have a, a Degas picture of a horse race just starting or some people on horses on the beach and um, you could keep the go going well. <laughs> I'd love the Degas too. Listen, 
he wasn't a realist. I mean, that's the first thing to take on board, that he was not a realist. And his art belongs more in the realm of things like illuminated manuscripts or stained glass windows, where the colour, its job is to evoke moods and to symbolise. And the same with the figures of the horses. I mean, there isn't a narrative because it's not meant to be like a picture of a race or something like the Rosa Bonner, a picture of a row of horses waiting to be sold. Um, each one of these little figures on a horse is almost an evocation of of a single figure and the mood I think you see there's a mood in in Gauguin that you often get and you you get it most perhaps in, in some of his his portrayals of women of Tahitian women and it's an air of divinity we know from his writings that he was I mean he was an enemy of the Catholic Church he was an enemy of the French colonial system he, he went to Tahiti to get away from civilization and he had this fantasy of this other world where people were just truer to nature, truer to things, truer to humanity in its older way. And that spirit is what he tries to paint all the time. And a bit like, you know, last week we had Franz Marc, who had picked, who was, of course, massively influenced by Gauguin. Franz Marc painted his blue horse because that horse symbolized the days of paradise before the way the world was spoiled, etc. Well, that mood, that comes from Gauguin. You know, that's what Gauguin went to find as well, was a, a world that was uncorrupted by Western and capitalist and French ideas. So it's like looking up at a beautiful stained glass window and seeing the figures of the Virgin Mary and the saints. They're not there to tell you a story. They're there to evoke something on their own and to present a mood, a, an atmosphere, a, a sense of sanctity. So they're not the most realistic horses in the world, but they are ones that I think do project an air of tenderness and love. So that's what I like about it. Mm. Well, at the moment, it's uh, vying with Remington towards the lower reaches of my list. <laughs> Typical of my choices. You don't like any of them. Um, <laughs> let's see how we, we feel about the last one here, which is slightly anomalous because, I mean, it, it, look, it's Guernica by Picasso. We can't do a horse discussion about art um, on this podcast without mentioning Picasso. I know you you always try and rub him off any list I put him on. Um, you rubbed him off last week's list, but you can't rub him off this one, even though if I was being really honest, I would have to say that Guernica does not feature a huge herd of horses. It actually features yeah. one or, or, or rather a cubistic horse, which can be understood as a horse made of many bits, which is almost the same as a, as a, as a, as a lot of horses. Um, and of course, everybody knows this is the great anti-war picture of the 20th century, painted by Picasso in 1937. It represents a scene from the Spanish Civil War, the bombing of Guernica by the fascists, by the Nazis and the Spanish Air Force. It's all about the destruction of humanity. It's all about the terrible atmosphere of war. It's all about what happens when humanity gets dark. Um, but none of that is spelt out. I mean, you talk about narratives, there are none in this either. It's all done with, with symbols, with bits and pieces of close-ups and, and, and simplifications of human figures. And right in the middle is this horse that's been butchered or murdered. And it's got its mouth open. It's screaming, this scream of pain. I mean, which you can hear from the picture, you know, this is not a silent picture. It's full of these noises of pain and anguish. And the horse joins the women who are screaming in the picture, the bull, as this central idea of, of the, the terribleness of war. I mean, this is, again, like, uh, like some of the pictures we've seen already, really, like the, like the Leonardo, like the Rosa Bonner. You know, this is a massive great thing. If you've seen Guernica, it's the size of a wall. And it is, as I said, I mean, it's the greatest anti-war picture uh, of the 20th century, which is the century of war, let's face it. And at its centre, playing a key role is the horse. Um, so it's a horse in a different role. It's just so magnificent. Yeah, it's a picture which I think technically should be disqualified from the list because, as you say, it only has one horse. And yet, I think it's probably up there or challenging to be the most important picture of a horse in Western art history, in fact. And it's interesting that despite what we said about the, the very Italian nature of the Battle of Anghiari back in 1440, where allegedly only one person was killed when they fell off a horse, we know from history that the history of uh, Western Europe is uh, bloody and brutal and has been for centuries. And uh, war, 
uh, in which horses, unfortunately, featured um, all the time, um, could be awful. There's no doubt about that at all. And what I find interesting about this is that um, despite artists of the caliber of Leonardo da Vinci, who could draw horses, as we've seen, so perfectly and brilliantly, it took, in centuries of Western painting, it took Picasso to abandon um, any attempt at realism. It took Picasso to actually, for the first time, depict the, in all its horror, the actual uh, terror of war and warfare. And I think that tells us uh, all we need to know about Picasso's brilliance. And you might not have expected me to say that, Ross. No, you surprised me there, Squiggle. Um, on the other hand, if you don't like this, then you don't like art. I mean, let's face it. I mean, this is <laughs> yes. this is such a such an obviously important and extraordinary picture. Yes, there's lots of influences at work here as well, isn't there? Interesting influences. I mean, one of the other great horse paintings, which was on the on the list nearly here, we nearly got it into this list, which was the Uccello Battle of San Romano in the National Gallery. That that famous Renaissance image of a battle. The figure lying on the ground here with a broken sword in his hand, and that was taken straight from the Uccello, which has you know battle battle scene with horses, etc. The decision to make it black and white as well, you know, what a what an extraordinary thing to do. I mean, it, it, no one had done this before. It's a painting, not a photograph. Yeah, he deliberately goes for black and white, and of course it 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 completes the mood, doesn't it? I mean, it brings the picture into the world of of darkness, sure, but also into the world of sort of newsprint and, and the news. And, and there is a sense here that this isn't just about Guernica um, as a battleground, but there's a sense as well of us finding out about Guernica, about, about it suddenly appearing in the papers, that this Basque village had been bombed and all these people had died. And even the way he's painted the horse, there's a, there's a sense of chain mail or something about the horse that's wearing. But we know, we know from Dora Maher, who was his mistress at the time, from her memoirs, that she painted a lot of those squiggly lines on the side of the horse. But they could almost be newsprint. It could almost be like someone stuck a wet piece of newspaper to the picture and then taken it away, leaving behind these shadows of that. So it addresses the world in the biggest way possible, not just emotionally as a battle scene, but also in this sense of a broadcast. And of course, it was shown at the, um, the you know, the Paris World Fair of 1937, which was a big public event. The whole world turned up in Paris to be spoken to. So he walked into the Spanish pavilion and there was this massive piece of news, as it were, blaring out at you, which also had this extraordinary emotional impact. You know, I mean, well, you know where I stand on Picasso. I, I worship at his feet. Uh, but but this thing, I mean, it's so brilliant. He left these instructions that, that it could not go back to Spain until Spain was free. So he was waiting for Franco to die. I mean, I first saw it in New York at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, where it was hanging for, for decades because it wasn't allowed to go back to Spain. Picasso himself had specifically denied it the right to do that. And then when uh, Franco died, it went back to Spain and was received gloriously and now hangs in the Reina Sofia Museum in Madrid. Mm. I mean, everything about it is big and international and important. So, Waldi, um, when we last did uh, Horses in Art, we abandoned our usual uh, voting system and we hailed by acclamation a winner. Uh, do I get the sense that we're going to do that this time round with Guernica? Well, it makes sense, doesn't it, Bendy? I mean, we're unanimous, really. I mean, Taya loved it. Um, you loved it. I love it. You can't argue with Guernica. I mean, it is the great horse in pain in art and such an important picture. So, yeah, unanimously, um, we, we dispense with the old way of doing it. We stick with the new way of doing it. And Guernica is the winner. Um, at which point, of course, uh, we have to move on, don't we? Uh, we're going to move on to that bit of the podcast where you and I, Bendor, indulge our whims we're in lockdown and yet because of the magic of art we can have anything we want on our walls absolutely anything so what is it that we're going to go for this week on the wall on the wall oh squiggle um listen this has always been the part of the podcast that um, throws up the most unexpected things. But recently, uh, you seem to have gone forth super unexpected things, if I, if I can put it that way. So I'm expecting a big surprise this time as well. What have you got for me? I've gone for Leonardo da Vinci again. Uh, this time, his painting, Salvatore Mundi. Or is it Salvatore Mundi? 
Salvador Mundi is how everybody else says it. Painted in about 1505. Of course, this is the most famous art discovery of at least this century, uh, perhaps indeed of all time. Um, and it was discovered uh, by two friends of mine uh, who are uh, art dealers in America. They're called Alex Parrish and Robert Simon. Um, and they spotted it uh, in a sale. Uh, it was a, a sleeper, Maldi, which, of course, you and I uh, chase as well. A sleeper in an auction in 2005 in New Orleans. And this painting, which famously was sold in 2017 at Christie's for $450 million, this painting uh, was estimated at, uh, I think it was just $1,200. And it was catalogued as after Leonardo da Vinci. And uh, we know, in fact, what they bought it for. Uh, it was not even uh, $1,200. I think it was, a, it was about $1,000, which means uh, they were the only bidders. Can you believe that? No. So here's one that uh, you and I both missed. So I wanted on my wall because uh, I, it, it feels like, well, the, the one that got away. And I particularly wanted on my wall this week because uh, we, we have learned in the news this week that um, the painting is going to be the star of a new documentary film, uh, which is made by a French filmmaker called Antoine Vitkin. Um, and the title of the film is The Saviour for Sale, and it, uh, it charts the discovery of the painting, its restoration, its uh, attribution to Leonardo, which perhaps we can talk about in a moment, and its subsequent purchase at Christie's for the, the, the figure I mentioned, $450 million, uh, by the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman. And a part of the film uh, shows how the picture did not end up in the Louvre's recent very successful Leonardo exhibition. Do you remember they, they assembled, I think, 11 of his known paintings for this um, once-in-a-generation exhibition? And there was a great sort of mystery as to whether the Salvatore Mundi would, in fact, appear in the exhibition. And this film tells us that one of the reasons it didn't appear is that uh, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia said, you must hang it next to the Mona Lisa, and you must say that it is 100% by Leonardo. Um, and if you don't do those things, those two things, well, I won't lend you the, uh, the picture. Um, the Louvre, not unreasonably, said uh, no, uh, because that's quite a demand. And anyway, they can't move the Mona Lisa, so that wasn't even going to be in the exhibition. So the reason I'm going to have it on my wall is because it, it seems to me, Waldy, that um, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, perfectly entitled to have bought this picture, but I don't think he's necessarily been acting in the picture's best interests. And therefore, he might not miss it just for a few weeks while I have it on the wall here for me to enjoy instead. Yes, what a, what a strange story this is. So, I mean, this is the most expensive work of art ever, by a long way, you know, $450 million. Dear me, I remember when it was sold, of course, and it was sold in rather creepy circumstances because it was in the middle of a contemporary art sale by Christie's, wasn't it? And they put this right in the middle, a sudden old master that you came across, as if the contemporary art would raise the prices around it. It's been controversial since the beginning. There are many people who have doubts about it, and not you, of course, and that's nothing to do with the fact that the two guys that bought it are your friends. I know you're totally independent on these matters when it comes to discovering these sleepers, uh, but it has been controversial. It's a strange image anyway, uh, I think, in a Leonardesque way, it's a strange image, this, this very frontal Christ. I mean, couldn't be more different from the Battle of Anghiari. There's no movement in this at all. It's just this weird full frontal close-up of Christ doing that finger gesture that we talked about the other week on the podcast with the Botticelli, do you remember, and the saint in the little cameo in that picture holding a crystal ball. Um, it's iconic rather than realistic. And the way that the restoration was done, because there's also these pictures going around, aren't there, of what it looked like when they took off all the extra paint or the repaints, and there was a lot of it gone, let's face it. And the repainting of it has given it ever so slightly a sort of Beeple air. And there's <laughs> something sci-fi about it. I mean, you could see this is a Jesus that could step out of a spaceship, you know, the doors open and... <laughs> out he comes with his crystal ball and his lifted fingers. So I think what I'm saying there really is that it's not a picture I like very much. Um, but of course, it's all about the authenticity, isn't it? As you so rightly said, the, the Mona Lisa itself wasn't in that um, Leonardo show, which I had more doubts about than some people. I'll tell you what, there was an awful lot of digital stuff in that exhibition. And it was padded out with pretty much uh, all that stuff we were doing earlier on in this podcast, going around the virtual museum. There's a lot of virtual stuff as well in the 
Leonardo show. It presented quite a confusing picture of him, I think. Uh, but I, it didn't have the Mona Lisa in it. It didn't have this in it. This was, however, in the National Gallery's Leonardo da Vinci show, where it was presented as authentic. And I sit on the fence on it, really, but I, I tend more towards your position. I think, I think there is plenty of Leonardo in there, but I also think there's plenty of restoration and lots of other stuff. But how wonderful to have it there. I mean, you know, to have the world's most expensive painting hanging in a Squiggles Castle in Scotland. I mean, that's wonderful and it will be exciting. And so you can have a really, really good look at it as well, a really good poke about. I think I think it could be an important moment, uh, this particular on the wall. <laughs> yeah, um, I agree with you about some, some, most of the restoration I think is really quite good. Some areas I think they got slightly awry, particularly over the top of the head. Whereas um, if you look at the, the stripped down photographs of it, where actually I think it looks more Leonardo-esque than it does with after conservation, there's about an inch at the top of the head where they've slightly shrunk in the top of his head. So he looks slightly flat-headed. Anyway, you're quite right to highlight its condition. I don't think that detracts from the sort of the wondrousness of the discovery, because after all, how often do we find lost Leonardo da Vinci paintings? The film has rekindled all sorts of debate about the attribution, and and so many people keen to say, oh, it's been proven to be a fake. Mm. Um, and this is mainly because people uh, can't quite understand that really a lot of the time when we're talking about these big name artist Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, when they painted pictures, they very often had workshop assistants. And we know that Leonardo himself relied on workshop assistants. So for example, there's two versions of his famous picture of the Madonna of the Rocks. One is in the Louvre in Paris, and that's the first one he painted. So that's a Leonardo. And there's another version in the National Gallery of London, which we have documentary evidence to show that he had assistants when he painted it. So Technically, it's Leonardo and Studio, but it's still, if you go and look at the label in the National Gallery, it'll still say just Leonardo da Vinci. So I think uh, if to the extent that there's any debate about the attribution, in fact, amongst Leonardo scholars about this painting, the Salvatore Mundi, it is the extent of workshop involvement. So it will always be, at worst, Leonardo da Vinci and workshop. But I just think it's rather sad that people uh, get so sort of um, hung up about the value, the supposed value of $450 million, and they see any debate as to how much workshop involvement was in the painting as this kind of, uh, you know, great moment to say, oh, it's a fake and it was all rip off and it's a scam and a fraud and the art market's terrible and it all needs regulating and it's full of chances. And I just don't think that's the case. And I think at its heart, uh, we should separate the picture away from the price tag and just appreciate it for actually um, an unusual, but brilliant for being unusual, an unusual, uh, rather mysterious and rather captivating image of Jesus Christ. Hmm. Well, first of all, I don't think you can separate it. For not, not just you, Squiggle, but your two mates who bought it. I don't think we can separate that particular grouping from the 450 million, which makes it the most expensive artwork of all time. And all the stories that followed uh, are about its owner, you know, having it on his yacht as he sailed about the Mediterranean. I mean, that that speaks of a of a certain a, a certain disregard for for the seriousness of art, for the um, the importance of Leonardo da Vinci for what art should be. You know, it's, it's for heaven's sake, this is, this is Christ as the savior of the world. I mean, this has got important religious meaning if it has anything. And I do think that the price tag, weirdly enough, cheapened its seriousness and its reality. Um, of course, you're absolutely right. The people who call it a fake are, are, are know-nothings um, and they should just shut up. I agree with you also about the whole idea of workshop creations so much art is 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 the result of many hands making light work as it should be mm. um i don't like the image as much as you do i think um in even in the leonardo's cookbook you know give me the battle of Anghiari any day <laughs> um but um we should thank it you know just just thank it for the amount of news and interest and discussion that it's prompted since it popped up so um yeah your two friends and you you know you've managed to do that i think very successfully you've kept leonardo in the news and we're all talking about him so anyway, Squiggle, let's move on to something uh, indisputably uh, a bit more modern. Um, now, I don't know how much you, you read my articles in the Sunday Times, but if you read them at all, you'll know that I regularly have a pop at uh, video art. I just, I just don't get a lot of it. I certainly don't like a lot of it. For me, art is always about encapsulation. You know, what makes art great 
is that everything can be there at once. You know, you look at the picture, it's all there. You can spend a year looking at it to know it better, but you don't need that year for that picture to be finished. It's finished as soon as you look at it, right? So I have this problem with video art, which takes forever, but there are a few pieces that stand out. And um, there's one in particular that I wanted to show this week on my wall by projecting it onto my big white wall in my house. And it's by an artist called Pipilotti Wrist, who's um, a progressive Swiss artist who um, appeared really quite um, out of nowhere, certainly for me, at one of the Venice Biennales I went to. I think it was the 1997 Venice Biennale. And it was this piece that did it. And it's called Ever Is Overall. And what it is, is a video piece of a woman who walks towards us and she's holding uh, something that you don't quite recognize at first, but it's a sort of long flower. Uh, it looks like she's holding a giant flower. And she's walking in slow motion and there's this um, pulsing, soft electronic music playing. And it's quite lyrical and she's got a beautiful turquoise dress that seems to be sort of flowing in the wind. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, this thing that she's holding, the flower, she uses it to smash a car window. And then she walks on, she's smiling all the time, and she does it again. And then another one. And at some point, there's a policewoman who walks by, and you're expecting her to be arrested because you shouldn't be encouraged for smashing car windows as you're going along. But the policewoman smiles at her and walks on as well. So yeah, it's a fantastic piece. Uh, it's about some uh, idea of, of feminine freedom, of rebelliousness, of just taking stuff on and doing the opposite of what's expected and it is it's this weird thing that video art can do which is without spelling out anything specific it seems to capture a very real moment or a real feeling and sometimes when, when this is projected it's projected alongside a, a field of flowers uh, the same type of flower that she's holding in her hand and uh, the flower is actually the the aloe you know which is the flower that was much used later on in um, medicines and uh, people use use aloe juice in their face don't they to make themselves younger so it's associated with healthiness and um with with this medicinal care so the flower that she's holding this kind of hammer as it were made out of a flower that's also an aloe so that adds it another level of interesting meaning to this so when i watched it it was really exciting and watching it again i still think it's exciting and of course it's been a very important very influential piece of video art so in the rare world of video art that i like this is way up there squiggle well, dear, I, you won't surprise you to hear that I'm generally with you on video art. I find it mm. quite odd, strange, hard to like. I remember once going to a gallery where there was they had an exhibition of some video art. I can't remember who, who made it, but it was just a footage of a, a naked woman's torso. She was standing on a beach and she was doing the hula hoop with a barbed wire. And it just sort of it cut into her more and more and more. Anyway, um, really odd stuff. And um, I've never quite got to grips with video art ever since. This particular one, I just... When was it made, by the way? Well, 97. That was the, it was the Venice Biennale in 1997 that I saw it, and that was the year it was made. Okay. It may have been the quality of the version I saw online, but it was. it seemed to be, like a lot of this video art, it's sort of made deliberately badly. A sort of low quality kit and strange sound is, is that is that yeah i think she i think she used the kind of i remember using them those sort of handheld little digital cameras that were really a way of everybody basically starting to make videos um so deliberately so i think they they use these little handheld cameras and, and yes it isn't big high definition clarity that you're, you're getting here it is slightly blurry slightly pixelated well i just find it strange that, that art when it's done in video form it sort of needs to be made a shot like a bad film in order to differentiate it from just film or tv anyway I, i'm an old stick in the mug when it comes to these things you mentioned that it had been quite in, influential um and you're right you brought to my attention uh, a music video by beyonce and she yes. referenced this walking down the street and smashing a car window in uh, i much prefer beyonce's version <laughs> well beyonce's version is um a tribute to the original pipilotti wrist piece um, and I, I stuck that in because I basically I was trying to present myself as cool for my daughter, <laughs> who's an absolutely fanatical Beyonce fan. 
Um, mm. She loves everything Beyonce's ever done. And so I thought if I can somehow prove to her unsuspectedly that um, that Beyonce's great video for her for her single called Hold Up was was inspired mightily by Pipilotti Wrist, that that'll it'll give you lots of marks on the cool daddy front, you know, which <laughs> I'm after all the time as we as we dads with daughters are, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, the Beyonce, see, Beyonce takes a lot of the subtlety away from it, you see. She, because Beyonce looks terrific and, and it's high definition and she's, this time she's got a baseball bat, hasn't she? So she wanders around banging the cars, which are all incredible kind of designer American cars. Cars that I want, you know, these Ford <laughs> Mustangs and brilliant, you know, Studebakers. And um, she breaks all their windscreens. And at the very end of the film, I don't know if, don't know if you got that far, but in, in the video, she actually breaks the camera that's taking the picture as well. So mm -hmm. he hits that with a baseball bat. So with her, it's it's very noisily and, and obviously about the sort of rebellious modern woman. You know, I do what I want. I walk down the street, I break what I want. That's the kind of mood of it. But what's what's better and wonderful about the Pipilotti wrist piece is that it isn't about that. It's about something more ethereal and more distant. I mean, there isn't the great obviousness of what Beyonce does. There's something more subtle. And um, as I said, the, the aloe relationship, the fact that you finally find out that this thing that she's holding, this flower, is actually a kind of hammer that she's breaking the glass with. This Just the way it's been shot, the way she walks towards you with this frilly sort of pre-Raphaelite blue dress, it all keeps it much more mysterious. And it allows it to be about other things. And it was pioneering, absolutely pioneering. At the time, no one had made a video artwork like this. As I said to you, I don't really like a lot of video art, but I thought this was terrific. And I'm going to so enjoy um, having it on my wall, playing it, and then when my daughter turns up saying, oh, Beyonce, yeah, she copied it from this. That's going to give me so much pleasure. You know, I made a film about the Venice Biale for BBC Two. Oh. Back for the culture show many years ago, yeah, and um, I made it with Alistair Souk, and I was supposed to be the old mastery lover, going round Venice Biennale, cocking a snook and being rude about everything. And you can, um, you can imagine it wasn't a very difficult role for me to play. No, you're always getting typecast, aren't you? It's the same as yeah. on this podcast, isn't that yeah. strange? Yeah. So it's taken me to introduce you to modernity properly, um, mm -hmm. and there'll come a time when you'll thank me for it, but it ain't going to be right now because I'm afraid. That's probably the uh, the end of the podcast, Squiggle. Anyway, uh, we, we've tried our best. We've we've given you the digital art special. We've gone for it big time. We've done the best we can, as I said. And it's a uh, goodbye from me, Wald D, and cheerio from me, the Squiggle. Wald D and Bendy.